Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. This episode of Other People is sponsored by Words After War. Words After War is an emerging literary organization with a mission to offer fully funded opportunities for veterans, their families, and civilian supporters to share their stories. Words After War aims to build a supportive, creative community through writing workshops, studio retreats, and literary mentorships. The organization was co-founded by writers and longtime friends Brandon Willits and Mike McGrath, who aimed to change the national conversation around veterans' issues by including civilians in that conversation. Their first writing workshop launches this fall in Brooklyn, New York at Mellow Pages Library, and it's open to both veterans and civilians. The workshop will be led by writer and veteran Matt Gallagher, a former Army captain and the author of the Iraq War memoir, Kaboom. Matt is also a co-editor and contributor to Fire and Forget, short stories from the long war. Both of these books are published by DeCapo Press. For more information, go to www.wordsafterwar.org. That's wordsafterwar.org. They also have a Facebook page and a Twitter. Words After War, it's a literary organization for veterans and civilians. Go and support it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is about writers. This is happening to both of us. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I'm reporting to you uh, as usual from my apartment in Los Angeles. How are you today? Are you feeling good about yourself? Ethel Rowan is my guest. She has a new story collection out called Good Night Nobody. It is available now from Queens Ferry Press. And uh, I think you're going to like our conversation. Ethel is a gem. And uh, I believe uh, she is also... Uh, the first uh, Irish woman that I've ever had on this program. The first Irish woman. That's my impression of an Irish accent. So, uh, hey, uh, did you see this poll that came out this week uh, about American reading habits? 
I think uh, like YouGov conducted it. Some polling organization. And uh, the results were interesting. 41% of respondents said that they had not read any fiction in the past year. 42% said that they had not read uh, any nonfiction. And 28% said that they had read no books at all. And uh, you know, I tend to think that these numbers are actually low. I think people lie about their reading habits, uh, much like they lie about sex. Because, you know, if you ask somebody how many times a week they're having sex, most people round up. They'll say three, but really it's like uh, two or like one and a half. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, you ask somebody how many books they read uh, in any given month or year, and uh, it's probably the same thing. People lie about sex and people lie about reading. And uh, people are not having enough sex, and uh, people are not reading enough. And I, I think this is a you know a central problem of our existence. I've decided this. Like, why else would I be doing this show? I'm trying to help you read. Like this much is certain. Uh, I'm not really sure how I'm helping you to have sex, but uh, I certainly want you to have sex. I think it would be good for you. And, you know, like, think about it. Uh, if people read, uh, like, more literary work, both fiction and non, uh, they, w they would likely be more empathetic, more interesting. Uh, they would have better social skills. And, and you know what? Don't take my word for it. There was a, uh, another article recently that I saw in the New York Times uh, regarding this very thing. It was about uh, social skills and reading. And uh, there was an actual scientific study conducted uh, and then like reported uh, in the journal called science which sounds official and uh, it found that people who read literary fiction uh, as opposed to uh, popular fiction or even serious nonfiction, people who read literary fiction on a regular basis uh, performed significantly better on tests uh, measuring empathy social perception and uh, emotional intelligence. All of which help you to get laid, if you think about it. And, uh, you know, if you're getting laid, you're probably going to be happier, uh, more relaxed. You're going to feel good about yourself. You're going to, uh, you know, hopefully experience real intimacy. Uh, by virtue of your reading, your relationship will be stronger and uh, deeper and more substantial. And, you know, like, think about the ills of the world. Sexual dysfunction uh, is right there at the heart of it. You think about uh, terrorists, violent extremists, uh, religious fanatics, people who think that they're going to be greeted uh, by like 80 virgins on a beach in the afterlife. <laughs> These kinds of people are incredibly sexually frustrated to the point of homicidal rage. And I can, I can almost guarantee you that they are not reading uh, David Foster Wallace. Or whatever. You know, the point is, it's the solution. Uh, I, I have found the solution uh, to uh, all of the world's ills. And I am uh, now on a crusade via this podcast to make the world uh, more uh, readerly, literate, uh, sexual. So I want to make the world more sexually healthy. 
via literature. <laughs> Are you lonely? Are you hoping for a relationship? Uh, perhaps you should read in public. Or, uh, better yet, play this podcast in public. On your phone. On speakerphone. Uh, in a coffee shop. Or perhaps on the subway. And uh, you can then use it as a conversation piece. An icebreaker, if you will. And, uh, you know, I'm here for you, is what I'm saying. What am I saying? Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Ethel Rowan. Her new story collection uh, is aptly titled Goodnight Nobody. <laughs> and uh, it's all about not getting laid. Actually, that's not what it's about, uh, but it's a terrific collection. Ethel is a terrific writer, and her stories uh, will help you in the bedroom and in the boardroom, for that matter. Uh, we had a great conversation. I think you're going to like it. Here she is, folks. This is Ethel Rowan, and her new story collection, once again, is called Good Night, Nobody. I'm sitting in uh, what I affectionately call my dungeon, which is uh, a room at the back of our garage, um, essentially in the basement of my home here in San Francisco. And I'm right next on my left-hand side is a window that looks out to basically the area underneath our deck. So this space tends to be quite dark and cold, and so I'm always in layers when I work here, and the light's always on. Um, so it's this sort of strange mood that I work in. Um, and it, yeah, I, I, it sounds good though. I think like, you know, I, I've talked to, I don't know if I've talked to any writers who have like a truly magnificent view from their writing hovel. Like most of them are like looking at a wall <laughs> if, they, right. if they have a window at all. But I almost think that like having darkness and some sense of being in a cave could be conducive to good writing. I mean, if I had too nice of a view, I'm afraid I would want to go outside. Well, and, and I, I think that's the common practice, that if you do have a view, it's going to be distracting. Writers will often just flip their desk around and sit with their back to the view. So, um, yeah, and, and I think the reality for me, and I'm sure for every other writer, is, you know, when you go into that zone, you, you honestly... You're not even aware of your surroundings. You're you're already gone to a very different place. So, um, yeah, I like it. I do sometimes get the urge. I want to, you know, head out to the local coffee shop, and it hasn't materialized. I haven't done that actually in a number of years. Um, yeah, I can't. I, I can't write in public. I, I've always, 
like not only can I not do it, but I also sort of, uh, well, I shouldn't say I can't do it. I sometimes can do some like screenwriting stuff, but like, I just, something about writing in public, especially like when I see people like doing what I think is journaling in public, right? Something about that. Like when you're advertising introspection, do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm having a deep moment. It just makes, gives me the willies a little bit. Well, it's like reading. I used to be able to read in public, no problem, and, and I can't do that now. Um, and, I, and I don't know what that is. And I think, honestly, for me, it's just time management as well. You know, I figure I'm losing at least half an hour to, to head out anywhere, and my life is so chaotic. I prefer to devote that half hour to either reading or writing. And um, So my life is all about prioritizing. So, So you're disciplined. I am disciplined, um, probably to a fault, uh, in that the writing tends to take priority over everything, with, with the exception of my two daughters. I have a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old, and while writing definitely steals me away from them, um, I make sure that it doesn't sort of consume me. I think without them, it would. So I give thanks for them every single day. They provide a little, a little balance. Little- like, you, you know, because I think, like... Uh, you almost have to be a little obsessive to get books done. I mean, I agree. I don't think, I mean, I guess some people can do it in this like kind of relaxed, like, you know, Oh, a couple hours here, a couple hours there. But like, for me, it's like, I've got to be all the way in and it's, uh, it's hard for me if I'm, and if I'm not, it's hard for me to engage it. You know, I lose the thread. Right. Right. And I, and I think that's, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm, I'm, I'm currently at such a level of frustration, and I realize that for all my discipline and all, and you know, I'm a hard taskmaster on myself, and I, you know, I expect a certain amount for myself every single day, but I'm not good at finishing things. I just sort of had this epiphany recently, and you know, I have these great bursts of imagination, and I can start. And again, I think that's pretty common, but you know, I, I can burst, you know, an idea with a story. And, I've got so many novels started and, you know, I hit about page 50 and then I get, I get distracted. And, and again, there's that pull on me in these different areas that I'm very grateful for, but I'm, I'm really realizing of late that I need to start saying no to a lot of, of opportunities that come my way, like book reviews and requests for book blurbs and, you know, things that delight me and I'm thrilled to pay forward. But I realize I, I'm just at a point where I really feel I need to knuckle down and, like you say, just absorb myself so much in a particular story and characters that, you know, nothing will pull me away from them. And I think I just haven't been faithful enough to the characters that have come into my imagination. And I'm actually working on a novel right now, and it's the first time that I've really felt that, you know what, nothing is going to distract me from this and from this man and his story. And... And I know it's it's thrilling and exciting, and there is that frustration of, you know, I almost wish I'd gotten here sooner. But I guess we're all in our journey and our path, and I just wasn't meant to get here sooner. So well, that's what I'm I glad I'm here now. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it sounds like too, like uh, the kind of discipline and knuckling down that you're talking about is more specific to writing a novel, simply because it tends to take longer than the the short story. Like, I mean, is that the trouble that you feel like you've had more? in terms of finishing is, is trying to finish the longer, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. And, and I have, that's, that's sort of, I think that again, you know, I think frustration is going to come up in this conversation a lot today, but 
I think my frustration is that I'm, I'm actually literally right now looking at uh, manuscripts that I sort of pulled out of a bottom drawer of my filing cabinet a couple of months ago, and it's I'm looking at at least 500 pages, and I know in there I've got two completed novel manuscripts, and they're awful, and I finally, you know, I finally come to peace with that, that I need to let them go. They were damn fine practice. But there's still a body of work that I produce, so I know I can go the long haul. I think what's happened is that idea of birth, you know, and the births have allowed me to write some, I think, I hope, fine short, short stories. And that's sort of a rhythm, like that's a muscle that I sort of built up and I flexed and enjoyed for the last several years. And I think now I'm back to the point where, you know, my first love and my first impulses were the longer work and the novel. And like I said, now I'm sort of chomping at the bit to to get back there. And I think like the two novel manuscripts that I've, like I said, they're sitting on the floor looking right up at me. I... I'm at peace with that they just don't work. Whereas this novel that I'm currently writing, I don't know, I oh, I can taste it. It just feels so right. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is it. This is the one. All right. That's exciting. <laughs> Check back in with me. I that's And I'm determined that, you know, and that's, that's, I think, my fear because I'm familiar with this pattern of that burst. You know, you first have that idea and I... I have this novel beginning, middle, and end, which is very unusual for me because normally I'm literally scene by scene and you know sentence by sentence. I always start with a character and maybe a turn of phrase or you know something, maybe a conversation I've overheard something, an image that has sort of stayed with me for a bit, and that'll get me into the story. But I never outline, I never have any idea what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, Whereas yeah. this novel, yeah, and this novel came from a short story. Yeah, I, I'm actually just, I've just joined in the last few months a really great small writing group and they just had a look at it and it's like, you got to keep going, you got to expand this, this is, you know, it's a great premise, it's a great character and I, I'm like, okay, and I threw the thing wide open and it's really opened it up and I'm like, yeah, it is, it's a novel. So, okay, so when you finish things, uh, be it a short story or a novel, like what is your relationship with your past work? Like, because... I, I can finish things. Uh, I just never like what I finish. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And that's, you know, that's, I think you learn that with experience and practice because I, you know, that's one of the rewards of writing, right? It's like that when you hit that sweet spot and you, you know, you, you write out of you something that I'm, you know, I have those moments, those rare, beautiful moments where I write something and I literally kind of sit back in my chair and go, like, I did not know that was inside me waiting to come out, and whether it's just, you know, a beautiful sentence or a character or a moment. And You're like, I, you know, I, I am a, you're like I am a genius. Oh, my God. Oh, I, no, I wouldn't go that far. No, it's that. It's just that. It's just a sweet feeling. It's like, you know, it, you know what it does? It, it makes me believe in the mystery of writing, that it's it's something bigger than just little me tapping on the keyboard and you know whether it's just that I have the capacity of imagination or memories that I you know have forgotten are even inside me but I can pull them out when I'm writing there's, there's just something at play that that keeps you going because for me that's the reward of wow I didn't know I had that in me to come out of me well um, I think I think there's a line like Hemingway uh not to sound too precious but I want to say Hemingway said something once where 
like about this very thing where he said, sometimes I write better than I can, which I think is about right. those particular kinds of moments where, yeah. you know, you're, you know, you're not quite sure where it came from. Well, and, and that's what I was going to say, you know, always, always to keep myself humble um, is, and, and, but I've learned to be cautious of those moments because a lot of it is just in the moment. A lot of it is just the high of, damn, this is good, you know, but you need to put it aside and it could well be that it's good, but it doesn't work with the story or it's not as good as you thought it was in the moment. And so I've gotten much better about sitting with the work and being more patient and less sort of, you know, willing to sort of throw it out there and go, look, look what I did. Well, well, then the internet's bad for that too, because you have that. It really is. It really is. Yeah. The lure lure of instant gratification and likes and all that stuff. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I sort of, yeah, you know, we'll we'll just jump, jump right into it. But my, my parents both passed away recently and I, aside from what I would consider normal grief, it, it's had this real profound effect on me where I'm really assessing life and, you know, what's it all about and what's real and what's not. And I've, I've definitely done a lot of soul searching on that idea of instant gratification. And, you know, I, I sort of, I've always been hounded a little bit by, is this what I'm supposed to do with my life? And, you know, I devote so much of my time and energy to it. And what the hell am I doing? And, you know, a lot of that kind of thing. And I'm back there again because of these life events. And while I'm very convinced that I will always write and nothing's going to stop me, I also, I don't know, I think I'm overwhelmed at the moment by many things. And I I just want to pull back. And I think I'm also grateful that the novel has come to me now because it's going to allow me to do that, to just sort of, throw myself into another world that doesn't have that noise of the internet and the immediacy and you know this is something that I'm going to sit with and it's going to take me away from what feels quite chaotic at times and I just can't keep up with this you know I, I yeah I think I'm just at that point where I'm like what's life about and it's about family and I've got two fabulous daughters and you know my 14 year old's not going to be around you know the next four years are just going to fly she's a freshman in high school and and so I, I just think the timing is right for me to just sort of rein in a little bit and and then of course there's the irony of this is all happening and I have a new book that's just come out so right <laughs> you know what a year and so yeah, it, it's it's been crazy, and honestly, I I'm doing better now. But certainly, in the last two three months, I just you know, and again, bursts. You know, I had bursts of energies where I thought, you know, no, I worked so hard in this book, and I owe it to myself, and I owe it to the stories, and I owe it to my publisher, and I need to get it out there. And then I would sort of flop back and go, no, I just really just want to stay in bed, and, <laughs> you know, hide under the covers, and so it's. It's been a crazy few months. It really has. Um, How close together did your parents pass away? Like, were the just a matter of months? Uh, in the three months, three months, and and um, my dad actually went in for surgery. My mom was expected. She had advanced Alzheimer's, and she was in a nursing home for eight years before she passed away. So, you know, I feel like I lost her um, slowly, and and had a lot of time to grieve and get used to that idea. Um, so when she actually passed away, it was. It was merciful, and it was an idea. It was a sense of relief, both for her and for us. I had five siblings and my dad at the time. Um, 
But just days after we buried her, Dad was, um, it turned out he had an aneurysm on his aorta and it need, he needed surgery. And they called him in for surgery and it was literally two months the day of our mother's death. And uh, the surgery went wrong and long story short, it took him six weeks to die. Um, and I, 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 yeah, it was brutal. I went to Ireland and I was with him and I, I was with him pretty much every day and I was with him when he passed away along with my sisters and it's it is the most difficult thing I've ever gone through um, and very spiritual at the same time and I don't know it's been rough and so yeah then I sort of come back to San Francisco after seven weeks in Ireland and it's like okay now all right. catch up all the work well but I mean like that I mean you sort of alluded to this but I'm interested in going a little bit further like after going through what you've been through which is you know these when you lose people especially like immediate family members uh it's a power, like you say, it's a powerful experience. It's a kind of realigning experience for a lot of people most of the time. Did, like, how does it make you feel about the work that you do as a fiction writer? Like, does it make it make more sense or less sense? Does it make it feel more important to you or less important? That's a great question. Um, I think the conclusion I have come to is that it is more important because. I am very much in a mood of thinking of, okay, what is important? You know, life is short. Um, I've got my health. Health is everything. I've got my family here. Uh, you know, what what do I want to spend my days doing? Um, and I've sort of done that idea in my head of, like, if I had 10 weeks to live, would I keep rising? And I would keep rising. So I think that actually, for me, I hope, has sort of put to rest all of that self-doubt that I've definitely struggled with over the years. And it's like, okay, this is my thing. This is what I do. Um, and now it's how to do it to the best of my ability um, while taking care of my family, my other big priority in life, and taking care of myself. And honestly, taking care of myself just never even came into my mind before this, you know, you know, to the point like where now I'm like, is it worth exhausting myself on front of the computer all day long when, you know, probably 30% of the time is donated to, uh, or sorry, devoted to, you know, refreshing TweetDeck and Facebook and, <laughs> you know, really. I, I, have, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, this is. <laughs> oh, it's just crazy making, oh. absolutely crazy making. So I, I, now, now, and I, I'm really hoping I can hold on to this. My day is more about, okay, you know, wh where, where, where's the joy in this for me? And I don't mean joy as in, you know, something extreme, but like, where's the pleasure? Where's the, you know, what can I do nice for myself today? Well, I really want to prioritize my novel, and I'd love to get some words down on my novel. And so now I'm doing that. That's the priority of my day. Oh, now, now I think, yeah, I'd like to check in on Twitter, because I do. I love Twitter, God help me. Um, not so much Facebook, but, you know, so there's a little bit of dabbling there, whereas before it, it would have been more obsessive. And I'm like, it's a beautiful, today is a beautiful day in San Francisco. I got up at 8 o'clock this morning, I walked the beach, and so there's a definite shift, and I don't know, the grief, I, I thought I knew grief before I lost my parents, and it's my dad in particular, I think just because it was so shocking, and 
the pain of that is so sharp. It is so sharp, and it's how to ease that now as I go forward with my days. Um, I think of them every single day, and that's, I don't know, that's been shocking to me. I didn't expect it to be this powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I want to, so how do I, how do I use this, you know, to my benefit? You know, how can I gain from this? I do believe all suffering is an opportunity to learn. I think I would have given up on life if I didn't believe that to be true. Um, and so I, I don't know. I can't quite explain it. I feel like I'm in this shitty place right now, but I'm getting to this really great place. Well, and you know, it takes time. I would imagine, you know, yeah. like most yeah. of these things, it's all, it's all pretty fresh. Uh, it also strikes me that most of us, and I don't know if you're among, uh, among the, you know, these people, uh, but death loss, like the, the inevitability of it, uh, is something that for, you know, we, we somehow can like just put on the back burner or forget about until Absolutely. we're confronted Absolutely. with it. You know, having a mother with a long-term illness like you did, maybe it was more present in your life than it would otherwise have been, but. Um, you know, it's something that's like almost worth thinking about every single day. Like this is temporary, you know, and, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's it's everywhere and and yet it's shocking, you know, and it, it seems, it seems, it seems shocking that it's shocking is I think what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No. And, 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 you know, why are we programmed this way? And we definitely are. And it, it seems like we almost need to get really bad news from our doctor that sort of shakes us into, huh, (laughs) you know, I'm dying. So now let me really appreciate how precious life is. And I don't know, it's sort of, it's sort of alarming that it takes something as terrifying as that, like to get a really bad health care before you assess things and... Or to lose somebody. I mean, okay, so here's a question because... You know, I've lost people close to me. I, like, thankfully, I haven't lost a parent. Um, I'm knocking on wood because I'm super superstitious. But, um, um, you know, you as as awful as it is, there I've always like kind of made like the half joke that some of my best moments have come at funerals. Like I've truly felt right. I've truly felt wonderful uh, around death in this weird way, like connected at a deeper level. Yes prioritized oh. all of the bullshit yep. truly falls yep. away uh, for that yep. period of time. But then uh, time, which does its healing work also has a way of, uh, you know, causing me to somehow forget or, or to let the bullshit creep back in. You know what I'm saying? So, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's like the rubber band. You just snap back into place. Right. You know? So how do we, how do we hang on to that clarity? You know? No, it's yes. That that is so true, and you know I'm Irish, so we love funerals, we love melancholy, and <laughs> it, you know I, I I did I got so many messages because uh, you know my writing tends to be confessional, and so I was doing some blogging throughout those seven weeks in Ireland, and um, I got one message from from the writer Monica Wislawska. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. She's the author of uh, Holding Sylvan. And she said, you know, stay present, stay in the moment. And I actually met her recently and I said, you know, had I got that message maybe earlier in my life, I would not have understood it. But that was sort of foremost in my mind every time I was with my dad for those six weeks. And it was very much just be here and, you know, just hold his hand and look at him and and hear his breath. And 
I don't know. It, it was, as you said, there was just such clarity. It was so profound, his funeral, the, everything. Um, and you do. It's, it's awful, but you feel so alive. Right. You know? right. It's, it, and, and time stretches, you know, and, and sort of when I'm normally going about my day, it's chaotic and it's like, oh, my God, it's five o'clock. How do I get to be five o'clock? And, you know, and there's none of that. Things are very slow and very focused and you know, time almost is too slow at times. And so, yeah, I, I don't think you can go through something like that and not be changed by it. And I think once you experience that type of being present and, and having that much clarity, I agree. Yes, absolutely. Life is so demanding. It has forced me, because even when I came back, I resisted. I, because, number one, I was genuinely exhausted. And there's grief and there's depression and anxiety and all the rest of it that I have tendency to suffer from and I really sort of resented the world forcing me to get back to business you know I wanted the world to stop um, and so it's the strange sense that you've got to get back you know life life forces us and as you say that's the blessing too because life goes on and you can't stay stuck but yeah I don't want to lose that type of clarity or that that sense of this is what matters. So, okay. So I follow you. I'm right there with you. And I wonder, is there something you can do? I mean, it's one thing to intellectually believe that and to, and to, you know, from a volitional standpoint to want that, but like, do you have any practice? Like I always like lean on like things like meditation not yeah. because I, not because of any belief, but just because it gives me something to do. I need something to do every day, <laughs> like some yeah. sort of ritual that like just reminds me to sort of set myself in the right headspace or to at least for 20 minutes, you know, try to be uh, prioritized somehow or just to just to shut up <laughs> and sit yeah. still, you know. Oh. Well, that's it, the noise in my head. I mean, that's why, you know, adding the sensory overload of the Internet on top of the noise in my head, it is it is totally overwhelming. So I think I have definitely dabbled in meditation, and it's kind of like exercise. I, I benefit so much when I do it, but can I force myself to do it every day? No. Right, right. <laughs> and I think, again, of that sort of in the past has been the lack of self-care where, you know, I know a walk on the beach or, or 20 minutes meditation I would benefit enormously, but, you know, sort of the other side of my brain was, yeah, but that's 20 minutes of writing. I'm going to write, even if the work is totally compromised because I feel like shit. Well, but writing, so, but I think, okay, this is another argument I've had. I think that writing can be a form of meditation. I think reading, because you're just concentrating on something, right? I mean, it's a, it's a stretch, <laughs> but like smoking. No, I, I agree it, with you completely. I, and I think that's why I write. Honest to God, I, I think yeah. that's because I, and I think I have it on my website, but I do feel stolen away when I write. Like, I'm so into that story. And that's what I said about those. I think what I talked earlier about that sense of wow is when I come out of that. And, uh-huh. and you know, it's like, wow, I went somewhere else. And so this isn't just me sitting here tapping away. You know, there is definitely something at play here. And I. That's yeah. That's how I shut down all that noise in my head, and I'm, I'm, I'm just. I, it's not me. I don't know. <laughs> it's it is. It's exactly like there's a stillness. There's a stillness that comes when I write, that I get if I meditate, and that I get if I walk the beach. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I just think like, 
I don't know. I guess I, I I need to be better. I mean, personally speaking, I need to be better about the the writing every day. Um, but I think that particularly with the speed of life today and all the different distractions that are there, I, I, it's hard for me to, to fathom how one can access the kinds of, uh, things we're talking about, like the like level of consciousness or whatever you want to call it without doing something regularly. So here's a question, uh, somewhat related. Uh, you're, uh, Irish. So yeah. does that mean you're Catholic? Uh, yeah, I was, yes. I was raised Catholic. Both our girls, um, well, our oldest is just in, has entered high school, but she was in a Catholic elementary school for nine years. And our youngest, who's 11 and sixth grade, will also do nine years of, of Catholic school. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible Catholic, I think is how I would say it. Um, I'm a very spiritual person. I do believe in a higher power. I basically just believe in love, which sounds terribly corny, but it's the truth. Um, and so I kind of don't care what we call our gods or what we believe or do if we're just doing our best and, and there's kindness in everything that we do, you know, behind every urge. That's... I like this new pope. I'm Catholic. I, you know, I was raised Catholic. I don't practice or anything, but uh, I like this new pope. He seems like a nice guy. <laughs> I don't know. If yeah, I, I, I honestly, I'll be frank. I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention. Um, I did see a couple of things. You know, from him, quotes, whatever. Yeah, he seems a hell of a lot better than the last guy. But well, yeah, I mean, the last guy was like the emperor from you know, Return of the Jedi. <laughs> but I, I grew up, uh, you know, in my teens. Uh, pope John Paul II was pope, and he came to Ireland, and uh, I can still that was you know what was that 1979? He came to the Phoenix Park, which is this huge, I think, it's the biggest um, national parks and excuse me, the biggest park in Europe, and uh, it's, it's located in Dublin. We literally could walk from our home to the Phoenix Park. I think there was like a million people that showed up to see Pope John Paul II in his bulletproof Pope Mobile. And <laughs> I can remember that, and I can remember being maybe six feet away from him as the Pope Mobile was moving, and he's, you know, sort of waving out and blessing us all. And it was very profound. Like, I have no doubt that there was definitely something spiritual at work and whether that was just sort of the fervency of the people or... But I I will never forget that day. So... Well, there's there's something about, I mean, a million people. There's something about collective human energy. I believe in that. Like, yeah. Like, you go yeah. to... I mean, if you go to a concert, you know... Uh, right. You can feel it in the room, especially if everybody's uh, on something. <laughs> Uh, which I'm not even kidding either. I feel like the psychic energy quotient goes way up, but regardless of that, just like human energy period, um, yeah. is very detectable, you know, in a big yeah. room, uh, especially if it's good energy, you know, I think. Uh, well, that's it. That's it. And, and cause when you mentioned concert, I, I don't, I'm just not a fan of concert unless, you know, I'm, I'm very boring. If I can buy my ticket, I know I've got a seat and it's, you know, it's going to be kind of nice and tame. I'm fine with it. I am not great with, what you just said, that collective energy that's maybe, you know, a little manic or a little on the edge or, you know, anything could erupt at any moment. I, I don't like those scenes. Um, <laughs> I seriously, I think I've, I've like issues around not feeling safe. And Well, I, I remember, I mean, I just, I think back to my like uh, wayward youth and what an idiot I was. See, like of all things to do when you're, uh, you know, uh, on something and you're in an altered state like who wants to be in a stadium full of crazy people <laughs> I should have been out in the forest with like you know watching deer or something but I was uh... oh 
God. Yeah, I was like in an arena, like crammed into a seat. It's just bad, but uh, somehow, but somehow epic, you know, at the same time. And, right. And, and, and right. you know, to not to fully discredit it, I do believe that in its own crude way, those kinds of experiences are uh, for the disenchanted uh, religious, you know, uh, kind of a, a, right. a replacement, you know, there's a, there's, yeah. there's a sacrament, there's songs, you know, like. Yeah. It, it can be a religious experience. No, I, I, I totally get that. Yeah, music is so powerful. I I can't sing. Actually, my, my 11-year-old just the other day said, you know, Mom, what's the one thing you've always wanted to do that you've never done? And I think I thought about it for about eight seconds, and I said, sing. I would love to be able to sing. And well, I, you're I, on a podcast. You could, you would, we would welcome Oh, them. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be torture. I don't know how this interview has gone so far, but that would really kill us. <laughs> Some sort of what is that? What is Irish? not not Some not in the hip way, killers. <laughs> Some sort of like Irish folk song we could do. Um, I don't know. Oh God, no! My fourteen-year-old could belt that for you, but no, not me. I'm afraid. Uh, okay, well, I will spare you that, but I wanted to ask you some more. Oh, very sad. I, I believe you are the first uh, Irish person i've had on this program i'm not oh, that's an honor not of not of irish descent but i mean someone who was born there and actually spent uh you know formative years there i believe yes, so I uh you, you mentioned this park that you live near you were born and raised in dublin born and raised in dublin D- and yeah. you had multiple siblings uh parents who were uh, artistic no not at all um not at all but interesting enough um my dad about 10 years ago uh, revealed to me that he had always harbored the desire to be a writer, which shocked me. Um, my parents were very sort of everyday people. Um, they were working class. My dad was a barman. He worked hard, and he was absent from the home a lot. My mom was a, a homemaker, or a housewife, as we would say in Ireland. And unfortunately, she she battled mental illness. Um, and when I was 15, she was actually uh, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So, Oof. yeah, it was really, really rough. Um, well, how did so it, how, I, how did that manifest? I mean, like if you, uh, you know, I have like, I think I have sort of a, uh, you know, kind of the pop understanding of schizophrenia where, you know, someone's talking to somebody who isn't there or something like that. But how would it actually I, manifest around the house? How did you experience it? And I think the first experiences of it were that was mainly the paranoia, um, and it would be you know about neighbors, it would be about my dad, and when it sort of got to crisis point, it was you know her believing that dad was trying to kill her, um, and then she would make comments like you know I'll just kill all of us, and then that'll you know we don't have to go through anything with your dad, and you know, and I'm you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen years of age, and I'm the middle child, and my two older brothers are kind of out of there and um, I've got three younger siblings. It was really scary times and I was very, very close to my mother, I think, as the oldest girl and uh, she actually, uh, she she became blind, which I think was really the turning point for her, sort of losing that sense of reality. She just couldn't cope with her blindness. And um, how, did she, how did she become blind? She, uh, it's, a, it's a gene, it's a degenerative disease that uh, recognizes pigmentosa. And uh, the family folklore goes that my, uh, my maternal grandparents were first cousins. And so they sort of both had the bad gene. And they produced nine children. And I believe six of the nine ended up with this retinitis pigmentosa and were blind. 
Um, so I kind of became, which is so strange, I kind of became like my mother's white cane. <laughs> and, uh, you know, something she refused to use. And so anytime we were outside the house, I, you know, sort of her hanging onto my arm and, you know, I would say, here's here's a step, you know, mind the step, we're going down, okay, we're going up three steps, okay, we're going to the right, we're going to the left, and and so we sort of had this crazy codependency, and I was sort of her confidant for all of her paranoia, and... Um, no wonder you're a writer, for God's sakes. Yeah, I know, I know, it's, you know, it's so strange, but because I'm telling you all this, and it doesn't feel real, like, I, I had a really difficult childhood and then I came to San Francisco at 22 years of age and what, I, what, prompted, life, what prompted that I mean aside, aside from the you know the cumulative experience of uh, difficulty at home uh, my best friend actually who lived right across the street from me we literally our bedroom windows faced each other and we would like wave goodnight to each other across the street every night but she came here at 17 to to the Bay Area and actually nannies in the Oakland Hills and when we were growing up, we would, like, sit in her, her living room and watch TV, and we'd watch, like, Hawaii Five-0 and the Hills of San Francisco and Hotel, all these shows, and we'd say, you know, that's it, we're, we're going to go to America. It was never San Francisco, but it was, we're going to go to America when we grow up. And she came to the Oakland Hills, and I came to visit her twice. And after the second, we would say holiday, but after the second vacation, I, I went home, and I told my boyfriend, whom we had just picked out, um, my engagement ring, and I told my parents that I was up and coming to San Francisco, and everybody was horrified. And the more they told me that I couldn't do it, of course, at 22 years of age, that that was all I needed. <laughs> right. To pack my bags, and 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 I've often said over the years that they had to just sort of said, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> I don't think I would have come. You know, I think I think a lot of it was sort of fake bravado and some attention seeking and they sort of played right into my hand and I was like, Oh, screw it. I've got to go now. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've never looked back. I, I was here six months and I met my husband and like I said, I have two great daughters. I don't know. I, I have a beautiful family and I'm so grateful for that. And, and when I look back and, and not that I don't, I mean, I, I loved my parents deeply, um, as awful as it was. And I love my brothers and sisters and, I don't know. I, I still feel like I literally, I've had two lives. Yeah. And so, you know, when I talk about it, and it just seems like a whole new world, and I suppose just technology and all the rest. But, you know, I left to come to San Francisco. We didn't even have a, a, a home phone. <laughs> you know, so, so the first year and a half that I was here, I would phone the neighbor's house, and she would, like, run out and knock on the door, and my mother and father would come in and talk to me in her hallway, and I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. And we were so poor and, and I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm like, did that really happen? You know, it's just. Well, you grew up in a, you grew up in a home without a phone? Yes. Without a phone. <laughs> without a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. But I don't know. I don't know. My dad stuck with my mother. My mother stuck with my dad. We stuck with our parents. Our parents stuck with us. I, I don't know. I there's something love to be said. Love there's, is powerful. That's right, and there's something to be said, I think, for sticking with people. Yeah, uh, even really. if because I mean, and you know what? If you if you're with anybody long enough, uh, you're gonna take your lumps and you're gonna see some warts. You know what I'm saying? It's just the uh, absolutely, and and it did come full circle. And I, I don't know. I don't know how my parents 
you know, love for each other came full circle, but it absolutely did. You know, I would say the last 15 years of their lives, like, you know, my dad would sort of sit beside my mother with his arm around her shoulder, and it's like, what? Really? Because, I mean, they were just such undemonstrative. I, in fact, I just wrote an essay that the Rumpus are going to publish about, you know, my dad would never, he would, he, I never, my dad never told me he loved me, you know, and it would just, it would be humanly impossible for him to do it. It's just something that wasn't done, and I don't know. I don't know, but but did he love me? Yeah, and I was like, well, how do I know he loved me? Well, every time I went to Ireland, it was always this brown bread that he would get me, like from the bakery that wasn't local. He had to drive to do it, and, you know, it's such a small thing, but every time he did it for me, and I don't know. It's crazy. So, wait, I but I, I, could... I, I think of, because, like, my wife is of Scandinavian descent, and uh, the Scandinavians are, like, notoriously... Uh, is opaque the right word? Just undemonstrative. Right. And like right. Hard, hard to read and uh, not, yeah. a, not a lot of hugging, you know? <laughs> like, Absolutely. Uh, so, but I always think of Irish people as kind of like a merry uh, tribe. But like, is, is, is that specific to your particular family or is it something that you think is common among no, Irish I, people? No, I think it's very typical of Irish families. And I think particularly of my parents' generation. This generation coming up, like I, my friends that are still friends when I go back to Ireland as parents, they tell their children every day they love them. And I, I think a lot of that is the influence of the American culture. But it's also, I think, but I, sort of getting back to your question, I, I definitely think my parents were very typical of that generation. And I think the Irish are very, we're a very social culture. And so therefore that idea of being hospitable and funny and that's kind of the social side. And it's absolutely true and it's a beautiful thing. But you're still, you know, we're not big huggers, that kind of thing, you know, no matter how sort of, I think it takes alcohol, you know, before <laughs> before you're going to get the arm around you in the pub and it takes a good sing song and, you know, we like to dance. There are other ways that we like to be physical, but as regards to, you know, the hugging and the I love you and you're so great and yeah, that's kind really of, not that's very kind of, Well, that's kind of an American thing. We kind of overdo something. It is. Like it is. Everything's you know. everything's wonderful, and everybody's great, and I love this, and it's amazing. Like it drives <laughs> drives me a little crazy sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so are you a, are you a hugger now? Have you become more of a hugger? I am a hugger now. I am a hugger now. In fact, you know, when I go back to Ireland, and my dad bless his heart for the last fifteen years, he calls me the Yank. <laughs> and so they definitely notice how much I've changed, and they will definitely yeah, and the Yank, and uh, but you know, I can only be true to myself and. If I met you, would I hug you? No. Do I hug oh, my daughter? If I'm meeting you, I'm going to hug you now. That's a, It's officially <laughs> happening. It's going to be very uncomfortable. It'll be a long, it'll be, it'll be an uncomfortably long hug too. Don't do that to me, Brett. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you can do it, but you need to buy me one, maybe two cocktails first. <laughs> okay. Then I get nice and loose. And <laughs> yes, of course, of course. Everything's fine. You know, it's like, this is the thing, because I'm kind of like a, a when in Rome person, and I feel like I'm decent at, re I'm, I'm decent at like reading the room, and like you see how people are behaving. Um, but I have been around those families where like they're super affectionate, where like the dad, like they they kiss you on the lips. And, like, oh God, no! Yeah, that's no. a lot. I, that makes know, me sad. I've been and I've kissed like a friend of mine's dad on the lips because that's the way he was, and it was like, wow, this is you know. Sometimes you just have to roll with it, but I, I felt like that was where I started to, you know, my awkward, uh, the awkward factor started to present itself in my mind. But I still rolled with it. You know, I feel proud of myself. But my, my very first day here at the culture shock was, um, I mentioned my, my good 
Dublin buddy, Linda, and she had a roommate. And so when I arrived and we chatted for a bit and then the phone rang and her roommate was talking to her dad. And at the end, she said, okay, dad, I love you, bye. And then she hung up and 10 minutes later, there was a knock at the door and it was her dad at the door. And I, so when I'd heard, like, I love you, bye, I assumed <laughs> like it was, he was long distance and, you know, maybe they saw each other twice a year. And, and he knocked at the door and I remember just being like, Ew. <laughs> because it was so alien to me. Um, well, you can over, like you said, can overdo it. You can overdo it, and I think yeah. okay. Let me, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to hammer this too hard. But like with my own child, uh, I probably tell that kid that I love her like seven or eight times a day. It's like a little obnoxious, yeah. and yeah. sometimes, like I, I think that maybe, I mean, obviously it's authentic uh, and it's coming from a good place, but like. Sometimes I feel like maybe it's like an insecurity because I'm like, I just want to make sure I'm being a good dad. And so it's like, I got to make sure I tell her. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like a, yeah. it's like a, a, ner- a nervous tick almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. And then, and then, you know, which would be my dad's argument, you know, if you say it that often, does it become empty? Right. You're like, dad, I you don't, know? I don't need another loaf of this brown bread. Did you just please stop? <laughs> Well, I only went home once or twice a year, so, you know. Okay. But, I mean, how many loaves are we talking? It was just like the one introductory loaf, correct? Correct. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's he was the... a bit of a skin flint, fl- too. So, you know, I, I was never going to get too much. Oh, and he always bought me a lottery ticket. That was the other big thing. And, yeah. you know, and again, they're, they're tiny. They, they probably sound ridiculous. But no, I, I get I, it. These, these, kinds yeah. of, these kinds of gestures, it just it just goes to show you, you know, like... Um, exactly it's, it's the it's the gesture it doesn't have to be something grandiose it, it's just yeah. you know and it's and it's worth its weight in gold oh it really is and, and the other thing was you know when i would come back from san francisco you know the first 10 years or so and i you know things went really bad with my mother she was sort of at home with alzheimer's for way too long and Oof. with the schizophrenia you know she needed an, an injection every single month and if you know for whatever reason, there was any delay in that medication or a few times, like, you know, the doctor would sort of try and play around with it and see if she needed to be as heavily medicated. And and by her behavior, you would know, like, okay, no, she really needs that monthly injection. And so, you know, my dad sort of constantly had that burden. And when I, over the years, would go back, I think it was a sense of he was distracted. You know, he was leaning on his own crutches with alcohol or whatever else to get through. And so when I would come home, it was a sense of always me walking into the kitchen and it was almost like I was interrupting, you know, there. It wasn't really that sense of, hi, you're home, how are you? And in later years, or in more recent years, should I say, when I would come, you know, knock at the door, whatever else, dad would always answer us, as opposed to like one of my siblings, whatever else. And in the last maybe five years, he would hug me, which for me was like huge, for him was huge. And so, yeah, See. it's the simple things and it was enough for me, not always, but now looking back, it was the best that he could give, and I'm I'm grateful for it. Well, um, what else can we talk about? I mean, you're you're writing. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we've covered so much good stuff, you know. Oh, um, and uh, I guess like what I'm curious about is, you know, how you feel as an Irish woman. Uh, you know, who has now been expatriated for how many years? Right, at 20. So I'm like, right, I'm pretty much half and half in, in both countries at this point. Okay, so 
We, I mean, we, we talked about, you know, the demonstrativeness and kind of like the use of superlatives that Americans uh, kind of are known for. But are there specific things you've noticed about yourself or are there things that your family has told you over the years that have changed about you in a concrete way that you would point to and say, this is, you know, directly tied to my Americanness? Um, I don't know if this directly answers the question. But I, and again, I've been thinking about this a lot since since what happened with Dad. Um, but my voice, my voice has always been an issue throughout my life and how I talk and how I sound. And so the big thing, I guess, when I go back to Ireland is you sound American. You know, I have, I now have that sort of California twang that they hear. And <laughs> I'm sort of constantly persecuted about it. And the irony is some of my earliest memories are being persecuted about how I sounded. And like I said, we were from a working class part of Dublin. But again, my mom, she was adamant that we'd all go to really good schools and get a great education. And I did go to a fine school. And we literally had elocution lessons every day where we literally would say, how now, brown cow, like straight out of Pygmalion. And I recited poetry and I won prizes and whatever else. I went on to public speaking and, and and so people would always say, you know, particularly, and then I ended up getting a job and I worked for, for Allied Irish Bank and it's really in their headquarters in uh, Ballsbridge, the south side of Dublin, a really, really posh area. And whenever it came up, you know, where are you from? It would be, I'm from Fitzborough, which in itself, my neighborhood is literally hard to say. So I'm from Fitzborough and they're like, oh, because they immediately identify with, you know, north side Dublin, working class. And I would all the time get, you know, so where'd you get your accent? from because I spoke well, um, whereas the more typical Dublin accents got a very distinct dialect and it sort of immediately identifies the person as what we'd call a Northsider. And I would have like kids around me that lived in Fitzroy and in the Northside area saying, are you English? Did you live in English? You know, England. And basically I sounded posh. And so people have always had trouble placing me and it's just been this bizarre thing for me. And then, you know, with our mother being so ill and sort of hiding that because it was scary and you're a kid and you don't know what to do with it and and it was sort of this sort of secret shame that you carried around and I don't know my voice is just it's it's been and I think that's another reason why I write I think I just felt silenced for so long or felt so self-conscious of how I sounded how people perceived me and you know the words on the page I don't know it's it's a safe way it's it's a celebratory way it's a great way for me to just get my words out and have none of the sort of distraction of you know having to justify that i can sound like this wait and so do you did you feel self-conscious when you moved to the states about your accent or no and i think that's a lot of why i moved i it was because i could be here and i could be anonymous and i could say i'm from dublin and it meant nothing i didn't you know i wasn't expected to sound a certain way and then i could say yeah i'm from Pittsburgh, and it meant nothing and i loved that well i mean i was, was going to say like you have to realize and i think you probably know you have to know this that like for American people, anyone from uh, the UK or Ireland, anyone who has that accent, or anyone from Australia, anyone who has an accent, uh, but especially I think like British people, Irish people, you could be reading the phone book and it sounds twice as intelligent as an American reading the phone book. <laughs> it just does. There's something about it, to, to my ear anyway. Like I feel like there, 
I feel like when I watch, uh, you know, uh, Brits and Irish people on TV, you know, like uh, on the street interviews or whatever, they just they seem a little bit more articulate than I'm used to, or they sound like they've they've got a better education somehow, and it's it's you know probably partially effect, but. You know, that's, are, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Are you aware? Uh, of that? I mean, have you been told that you have to be aware of that? People love the accents here, and you know, and I, I don't know if it works the same way where Irish people like uh, the California twang. It doesn't sound like it. But, uh, I think well, that Americans generally like the British accent or the Irish oh, accent. I, absolutely. And that also was part of my sense of like oh, this huge sigh of relief when I came here because absolutely, you know. I can't feel like 100% honest talking about the immigration experience or the immigrant experience because, you know, I'm wise, I'm here, I I speak, and, and I'm received by, oh, you're Irish, and just the pure delight. You know, you're immediately like one whole foot in the door with right. everybody. You're so well received. And I don't know, for me, it was honestly, it was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Because like I said, I came from an environment where I felt everywhere I went, I sort of had to justify who I was and why I sounded the way I sounded and why I wanted the things I wanted out of life. And does that make sense? So, yeah. so coming here was, was a new, it's, again, it sounds so corny, but it is true. It was a new, beautiful beginning. And I felt like I could start all over again. And, and you were in San yeah. Francisco. People are like giving it's you hugs. A and, city. Um, yeah, I, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and but yeah, absolutely. There was also culture shock. Yes, I was homesick. Uh, you know, I had a lot going on and, uh, you know, I'd left this tiny bedroom that I shared with both my sisters and we were so close and they were devastated. And, you know, even just with being home recently with dad, whatever else, like one of my sisters still says to this day, you know, whenever she's asked, like, what was, the most difficult thing you've ever been through and she said it was you leaving because Oof. you were like our mother even though i'm only three years older than them it was you know you were our mother and that kind of breaks my heart you Oof. know but yeah but we're all on our own journey and i i had to do what i did for me i i had to and well and you, you know like you said you, you were three years older you can't be expen you can't yeah. be expected to perform I mean, you were growing up yourself, for God's sakes. They have to understand that. I mean, you know, at least to yeah. some extent. Yeah. It's uh, weird. I, I don't I don't feel like I ever had a childhood. Like, I, some of my earliest memories, I, I already feel in my head I was an adult. You know, it's just, I don't know. It's crazy. It's well, crazy. I mean, but yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, huh, well, I mean, I, you're not the eldest, but I think sometimes that can kind of, uh, you know, Fall the eldest child in a family where there is uh, disability or mental illness or yeah. the, the loss of a parent or something, and suddenly, like a lot of that burden can shift downward, and it just sounds like. And, and I, I, again, that speaks to the gender roles because I think as the eldest girl, a lot of it sort of fell on me that okay, you'll you'll do the housework, you'll you know you'll you'll do the shopping, you'll do the minding your mother, you know, a lot of that sort of yes, that that onus and came on me, I think, and. That sounds like I'm bitter or something. I'm actually not. Um, but you, so, so I see what you're saying about the uh, the firstborn, and and in, I think in my case it was it was just being the oldest girl. So what about? And I, and I, oh, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just. Gonna I, say. I was just going to say, and I, I think I just naturally, I I, gen, I had a genuinely very close connection with my mother, and in some ways that sounds crazy, but it's you know I can only go back to my gut and and what I know to be true because, like I said. Where I to try and write a memoir and put it all down on paper, it is, it is so crazy. And so sometimes in my own head, 
like I said, there's all that noise and what's real and what's not. And I kind of just have to close my eyes and feel it in my stomach. And and the truth is that underneath all the shit and the grittiness and the horror, there's love. Well, and that's a lucky thing. Yeah, it is. You know, what's the alternative is, you know, be bitter and angry and messed up. And why? You know, my mom was ill. My dad coach the best he could and yeah well and the thing too is that like for some people underneath it all there isn't love <laughs> uh yeah which is, hor- which is horrible to say but i mean like some you know i guess what i'm getting at is that uh, and, and this is maybe one of my least favorite phrases in uh, the english language but it could always be worse and uh, because right. that's sort of a depressing thought, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, yeah. you know, every family and it sounds like your family, you know, had um, more than its fair share of difficulties, but every family, when you pull the curtain back and you start to dig around, uh, I don't know a single one that doesn't have something like that. And if underneath all of the difficult stuff, there's um, that sort of bedrock of uh, love and connection, then you're lucky because to be without that um, is, ex- you know, extraordinarily painful to even consider. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this then. Uh, it feels like a nice segue, uh, and, I, and I, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to be talking to someone from Ireland without bringing up the subject of alcohol, especially since you're a writer. <laughs> uh, uh, how does it factor? I mean, are you a, a boozy gal? Like, I mean, has it factored into your life? Have you stayed away from it? Do you have? It sounded your father was a barman, so it sounds like he was. A drinker. Yeah, my father was a barman, and he was a boozy man. And um, God, I uh, I drink. I for sure I drink. Um, uh, I had my first drink at like thirteen years of age. Um, and I, yeah, I, I could party with the best of them, not anymore, but, you know, I definitely went through what I would consider normal, you know, late teen, young adult, drinking, partying, nothing, nothing insane, though. I mean, I actually, I'm one of those, I think I've got hollow legs, you know, I, I never get messy way back when I, you know, I could sort of hold my drink with the best of them and walk out of the room and, and, you know, I'm good at holding it together. You're like, you're I, like, I, 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 I always a... vomited outside, so it was very, you know. No, no, I, I don't know. I've got the constitution of a horse. No, I, I don't know. But and so, so I have no concern with any of that. I feel like you know, been there, done that. Your party. Um, I still, I, I, you know, I've got a great social scene. But but we're all parents. It's just different now. It's different now. It's sort of you know you bring the kids, you have a barbecue, you have a few glass of wine, and right. But as regards the writing, drink an alcohol tank. Excuse me, writing an alcohol tank. God, no, there is no relationship there. And I'm so grateful because when I talked earlier about you know the obsessiveness and you know if if I thought that you know if I could <laughs> drink whiskey and produce great work, I would do it. <laughs> Well, I think it's so, I think it's the rarest thing in uh, publishing is the writer who can drink and produce while under the influence uh, high quality work. Yeah, uh, I'm not yeah. saying I'm not saying it can't happen. I think there are some documented instances where it has, or certain writers who have that process or whatever. But that strikes me as like being uh, one in a million. Yeah, no, I can honestly say hand on heart, I don't think I've ever written even with. You know, my my drink now of choice would be, you know, a glass of wine at the evening with my dinner. I don't think I've ever written a word with a glass of wine under my belt. I just, 
I just don't do it. I no. And like, but like I said, if I could drink and it worked, hell yes. <laughs> it would be so nice. Why is life so unfair, Ethel? No, no, no. I'm so grateful. <laughs> I am so grateful because I just no, no. I, it's not worth it. <laughs> so are you are you caffeinating uh, when you're when you're writing, or you just go in? No, I no, I'm not. You know, I eat, Brad. That's my thing. Like I, I don't know. I, I shouldn't generalize, but it seems to me like there's so many skinny writers out there, and I don't know how they do it because I eat. <laughs> Like what are you talking about? Like a like a what are you eating? <laughs> You're right. I, I, no, not, nothing terrible. But you know, it's like I uh, cups of tea, cups of tea. Barry's Irish tea bags are my downfall, and I can't have a cup of tea without you know a chocolate biscuit. We've got Irish import shops here galore, so I can get like my fi- favorite Irish chocolate covered digestives, and you know, cup of tea and. Before I know it, you know, it takes about five biscuits to every mug of tea. We'll see. Okay. Okay. I'm like, this is just, to me, this sounds totally normal because I will drink, you know, two or three pots of tea. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, Like, I mean, it's a, it's a French press. I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it, but I mean, you know, it's like two, two mugs full per press. If that makes sense. Yeah. And then uh, like chocolate, dark chocolate covered almonds. Uh, yes. and caramels oh. constantly. Oh. That's just normal for I me. Chocolate, sea salt, oh, caramel. Th- and by the yeah. way, when when did salt start appearing on chocolate? Now it's everywhere. I think that that's a new development. I know, but I love it. I love it. It's a good yeah. thing. I like this. Yeah. Sea salt and caramel is a devastating combination. Oh, it's heaven, heaven. But yeah, no, I'm a snacker. And then, you know, there's chocolate covered pretzels. And <laughs> so I, you know, I'm the kind that, and I, and this is where, again, you know, it probably sounds ridiculous, but this, this is sort of the way I'm thinking these days, you know, so how can I take better care of myself? So, you know, when I get stuck in, in a scene or a story and I don't want to do next, and I'll, well, I'll go up and make a cup of tea and have five biscuits. Now I'm saying, well, can I walk around the block, you know? I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of widen my my choice range, right? So it seemed less because because like I said, I, I definitely before this happened with my parents, I was at the point where honestly I just wasn't feeling good. You know, I felt like I was selling my soul a little. Um, what just not was, not not exercising and eating well enough? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, com- just completely, literally. You know, get up. Spend the hour in the morning with my daughters, you know, drop them to school and then literally come back, you know, ass in the chair in front of the computer. And that's it until school pickup time. And, you know, the last two months before my mother passed away, you know, I was whole new lows, you know, where I dropped the girls to school in my PJs and. You know, then I wasn't getting dressed until three o'clock when it came for school pickup. And <laughs> oh, look at that! I haven't brushed my teeth today because I thought I'd get one more line in this scene. And you know, where it just gets to the point where it's it's a form of madness. <laughs> well, your devotion to your devotion to your craft is admirable, nevertheless. <laughs> no, I think it's a, it's a little crazy making because what I'm finding now with this novel, and like I said, I, you know. I have to be careful because it's, it's new to me. This idea of 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 actually doing, of actually achieving more balance every day. I've always wanted it, but actually achieving it every day is very new. It's only been in the last couple of weeks, and like I said, I'm hoping it's a real shift. I think I think um, a, I think a morning beach walk before you do your writing sounds like it would be good. 
It's Absolutely. Un- so I, I'm seeing, I'm literally seeing the benefits in the work. You know, I really am. And it's coming out and it's coming out better. And I'm happier. And, you well, know, it's. I was talking to, I was talking to Susan Orlin or Orlean for this, uh, the 200th episode of this show. And she has a uh, treadmill desk and has been, and it's a relatively new purchase for her. But what that means is she writes while walking. <laughs> um, it's like, cause you know, there's been all this uh, press about how sitting is really bad for your health and it's essentially the equivalent of smoking. And, you know, no one is more guilty of, you know, being stationary in the seated position for longer stretches of time than the devoted writer. And so. Um, yeah, I was talking. I was talking to her about it, and she's like, "Yeah, you know the last, you know." And she was kind of superstitious, but she said the last two New Yorker articles that she had written, she had written on at her treadmill desk, and they had the process had been markedly easier. See now, Brad, you're just making me go out and splurge <laughs> money on a trail. <laughs> well, I'm listen. I've been thinking about it ever since then. I think people who listen to this show and who heard that episode are. I think there are a lot of people out there who... Was, was there a boom in sales? I, I don't know. She wrote a piece about her treadmill desk for The New Yorker, which I think... Oh, my God. ...probably sold a bunch of them. But, like, that makes some sense to me because, like, you're in motion. It's a little yeah. bit more dynamic. Yeah. You're not bogged down. And then, like, you throw in some, some caffeine and some amphetamines. It's like, forget about it. <laughs> I'm going to write a novel in a month. <laughs> oh, God. Wouldn't that be sweet? <laughs> Well, listen, uh, it's been great talking to you. I, you know, before we started recording, I think you were, you were worried that you weren't going to have much to say. That was clearly Well, not- I, I, really, I'm like, I'm really not that anything. <laughs> and like I said, it's clearly where I am right now in my life. I, I, you know, my, my mantra is usually, you know, nothing great is accomplished without enthusiasm. And I just, oh, my enthusiasm and my energy are just not where they would have been. Um, so, yeah, I was like... God. Well, I think uh, I think that my audience would beg to differ. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, my sincere condol- oh, my condol- my condolences to you on the loss of your parents. Thank and, you, Brad. Uh, Thank I you w- very much. I wish you uh, all the best on this new novel. Uh, I have, Thank you. for what it's worth, I have a good sense. I think that uh, I think I have a good sense, and I wish you well on it. Thank you so much, and thank you for what you do, the podcast. It's, it's a great series, so thank you. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Ethel Rowan. Go get her story collection. It is called Goodnight Nobody, and it is available now from Queens Ferry Press. You can find Ethel online at ethelrowan.com, and uh, she's on the Twitter where her handle is at Ethel Rowan. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app, available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the official app of this program, and it's the best and most elegant way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. Uh, okay. So good show. Uh, I've got a lot of reading to do. There's a non sequitur. I've got a big stack of books sitting uh, right here next to me. Uh, I've got, uh, white out by Michael, uh, clone, clone, Michael clone, clone. And uh, I've got revolution by devil and unfirth. Uh, my heart is an idiot by Davy Rothbart and so on and so forth. Will I get to them all? And what if I don't? What's going to happen to my ability to empathize? 
what will happen to my sex life. Please remember that Jane Austen despised the opera and that women in ancient Greece were not permitted to do the shopping. That is it for now. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you found it uh, enriching. I hope you found it uh, stimulating at every possible level. Thanks again to Ethel Rowan. Uh, What a great guest. Go get her book, and I will talk to uh, all of you guys again soon. How does that sound? Does that sound good to you? Do we have a deal? Do you... uh, Pinky swear. All right.